Father, we thank you that the faith has been once for all handed down to the saints. We thank you that through your providence you've preserved it for us, that we can know it and believe it and trust it and love it. But we wish not to be ignorant and we acknowledge that there are people who come, creep into the church and attack this faith. They pervert your grace and turn it into licentiousness. They lead others astray with their deception. And so I pray that you'd raise up in your church, even here in our local body, contenders for the faith. Brothers and sisters who would love the faith and cherish it and to go to battle for it as we have our unique cultural attacks on the faith in our day and age, I pray that we'd be aware of it and we would know the faith in such a way that we could see the error and confront it when necessary. So I pray that you'd bless this message this morning and again, raise up earnest contenders for the faith. Amen. Will you turn with me to the book of Jude? I'll be starting uh, my own series on Jude. Uh, I'll be preaching next week um, because Toby will still be on vacation. We won't be able to finish the letter, but we'll just continue uh, any opportunity that I have, and we'll just work our way through this little letter. Um, this morning, though, our passage will be the first four verses in, uh, in Jude. And so before we get in and begin with our text this morning, I'd like to consider the author who wrote it, uh, the time that it was written of the book, to whom it was written to, as well as a brief overview of the book. Uh, I believe that in establishing these things, we'll be able to gain a better understanding of the book as a whole. And so the, book, uh, the author of this book, um, our text this morning begins with the author identifying himself as Jude, or Judas, as it would be pronounced in the original languages. There are two theories uh, as to who this Jude could be. The first theory is that it's Judas the Apostle. Not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas the Apostle. Uh, we know from Luke 6.16 6, and Acts 1.13 that the Apostle Judas was the son of James. And if you look at verse 1 of our text in Jude, it says, Jude tells us that he's the brother of James. And so this clearly doesn't fit uh, with what we already know about the Apostle Judas, so this theory can be ruled out. The second theory is that the author of this letter is Judas, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. Consider what we see in Matthew 13. It reads, When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this, is not his mother called Mary and, and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So we learn that Jesus had four brothers, or more accurately, four half-brothers, two of which were named James and Judas. And so the author of this book is Jude, or Judas, 
the brother of James and half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. That theory fits the best. And so consider for a moment the power of did not believe in him. This is prior to his crucifixion. All throughout his earthly ministry, he was rejected by his brothers. And we have it recorded in Mark 3.21 that his family actually tried to seize him because they thought that he was out of his mind. They all thought that he was crazy. But after Jesus died, was buried, and then rose again on the third day, now his brother Jude is confessing to be his bondservant. And the word there for bondservant in our text literally means a slave. So, so Jude went from thinking that Jesus was crazy and wanting to seize him to stop him from spreading his message to confessing to be his slave and authoring a letter about fighting for his message. All of this because of the gospel. Jude is now a slave of his half-brother who he originally thought was crazy. Brothers and sisters, we have been entrusted with a very powerful message. Consider the testimony of Jude. It's a powerful story. And so after being converted, Jude was known to be a traveling missionary in the early church. He, he would have been exposed to a lot of different communities of faith. And so this explains his ability to speak with some sort of authority about the current state of the church when he sat down to write this letter. He was a first-hand witness to the state of the church. He would definitely have been aware of the false teachers that were creeping in. So the time of this writing, um, I believe that Jude wrote this letter somewhere between 67 and 70 A.D. Uh, I think this because Jude directly quotes 2 Peter in verse 18 of our letter, where he says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In these last times, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Since 2 Peter was written in A.D. 67 and Jude quotes it, the letter would have been written after 2 Peter was written. And uh, Jude not only quotes it, but tells his audience to remember what was spoken beforehand by the apostles. He assumed that his audience had a knowledge of 2 Peter, so Jude would have had to have penned his letter after 2 Peter was written. So we have one bookend at 67 A.D. And I believe that it was uh, written before 70, 70 A.D. Sorry, excuse me, because the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. And if Jude wrote this letter after the destruction of the temple, he most assuredly would have included that event in his letter because it fits perfectly with the point of his letter, with the main argument of his letter. As we'll see in later weeks, Jude walks through the history of, of God judging, starting with the destruction of the Egyptians, and he uses major events of God judging his enemies to display that God has always and will always judge his enemies righteously. 
The destruction of the temple was viewed as a judgment of God upon the unbelieving Jews for rejecting their Messiah. So, because this account fits so well with the point that Jude's making and yet is not mentioned in the letter, I conclude that the event had not yet taken place. And so this means that the time of Jude writing this, at least... Um, at, so, I believe that's our second bookend. AD 70. And so this means that if it, if it was before AD 70, right in that frame of 67 to 70, then this means that at the time of him writing this, for sure, at least the Apostle James and the Apostle Matthew had been martyred in a violent fashion, and most likely a few other of the Apostles, but we do not have definite dates on when they died. So we have um, Apostles dying off, and then also in 67 AD, uh, this would have been just three years after Nero falsely accused the Christians of starting the great fire in Rome and launching one of the most grotesque, evil, inhumane, and disgusting attacks upon a people group ever. And so, imagine the context. The church is, is growing at great speed, but the apostles who were the original leaders of the church, they're being martyred. They're dying off. The ones that through whom God had established the church and given the majority of the teaching of the New Testament through would soon be gone. All the while, it was a time when simply claiming to be a Christian could cost you your life in this time of heavy persecution from the Romans. And so these pressures surely had to persuade Jude all the more that the truth must be contended for. Next, the audience of the book. Jude does not give a specific original audience. He doesn't say to the church um, at Philippi or to the church at Rome, but rather he gives a general audience of all believers. In verse 1, he writes, To those who are the called, beloved in the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This includes all believers, since all believers are called, beloved, and kept for Jesus. So, in general, this letter is addressed to all Christians. I would argue, though, that there's a more immediate original context, uh, meaning that um, there was this, there, the people who had actually received the letter first um, and it, to me, it seems like Jude had in mind a primarily Jewish audience. His writing assumes uh, a knowledge of not only the Jewish Old Testament scriptures, but also popular extra-biblical Jewish writings. Jude quotes many Old Testament stories in his book, as well as First Enoch and the Testament of Moses. Both of these books were not considered scripture by the Jews, but were popular retellings and interpretations of Old Testament accounts among the Jews. So Gentiles uh, would not have been familiar with the Old Testament and most likely would have little to no knowledge of First Enoch and the Testament of Moses. And so this leads me to believe that he had a primarily Jewish Christian audience in mind. By way of a brief overview so that we could understand the different parts of this letter, 
Uh, Verse 1 through 4, Jude issues his demand. He charges all believers to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints because there were false teachers who had secretly crept into the church unnoticed by most. Verse 5 through 10, Jude reminds these Christians of the history of God's judgment upon the rebellious. He highlights important demonstrations of God's justice in the Old Testament and other Jewish literature. Verse 11 through 13, Jude points out some of the rebellious who had not only personally opposed, uh, been personally opposed to God, but had corrupted others also. Those who had chosen to deceive others into joining their rebellion against God. Verse 14 through 16, Jude offers an ancient warning from the book of Enoch against these false teachers who had crept in. Verse 17 through 19, Jude offers a recent warning, quoting 2 Peter directly and echoing the warning of John in, John, in 1 John, uh, Paul in 2 Timothy, and even Jesus himself in Matthew 7. Verse 20 to 23, Jude gives a closing charge on how we are to contend. And then finally, in verse 24 and 25, Jude offers a beautiful and glorious doxology. So now that we have a general idea about this letter and the background of it, let us begin in verse 1. It reads, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. As we've already seen, Jude refers to himself as a bondservant or a slave of the Lord Jesus, his half-brother. He then gives the general audience, namely those who are the called. And now, when we see the word called, we must realize that the Bible speaks of two different groups uh, of people based upon two different uses of the word called. The first group is those who receive the general call of God. And this, this includes all people who hear the preaching of the gospel. Consider the Great Commission where the apostles were commanded by our Lord to go and preach the gospel to all nations. That's the general call. The call that goes out to all people that hear it. This is a true and honest offering of forgiveness to anyone who will come. The problem is no one will come because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so there's a second calling that the Bible teaches. And it's, theologians refer to it as the effectual call. This is the calling that's unique to God's elect. Only true believers receive this calling. This calling results in them coming to, uh, to Christ in faith and repentance. That's why it's called the effectual call. It, it has an effect. Consider Romans 8.30. It says, For those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the called, in the sense of the effectual calling, were predestined before the foundation of the world, 
called by the Spirit of God, justified by the work of Christ, and will one day be glorified. And so we see the effectual calling refers specifically to God's elect people because God's elect people are the only ones that receive those benefits from God. And I would argue that the effectual calling is what Jude speaks of in verse 1. His audience is those who have been effectually called. We know this because the generally called who do not receive the effectual call are not beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. But rather, they remain enemies of God and mockers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jude is writing to the called of God, the elect of God, the ones whom God has chosen to show mercy to, the ones who are beloved and kept by God. And so this includes you this morning. If you've repented of your sins and placed faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation, Notice next what Jude says about the Christian. Beloved in the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Both of these statements about the believer are important to keep in mind as we walk through this book. The fact that we're beloved in God the Father contrasts beautifully with the false teachers that Jude describes later. He'll direct our eyes to the righteous wrath of God being poured out on those who oppose Him and His truth. He'll speak of God's destruction of those who do not believe. He'll speak of the punishment of eternal fire for those who engage in gross immorality. He'll, produce, er, he'll pronounce woe upon those who rebel against the Lord. But as for you and I, brothers and sisters... We are beloved in the Father. We have been made objects of God's mercy. He has chosen us who deserve the same wrath and judgment as those false teachers to be jewels of mercy upon His crown of goodness. Although we deserve that same eternal fire, indeed more so, yet God chose to be gracious towards us in making us Beloved in God the Father. It will serve us well to remember that the only difference between us and these false teachers is grace alone. Jude then identifies the call of God as kept for Jesus Christ. God not only has been merciful to us by calling us to Himself for forgiveness, but He also has promised to preserve us and to keep us. It's important to keep this truth as well as the echo of it found in the doxology in verse 24 in the forefront of our mind as we consider the imperatives of this letter. The charge of this letter is to contend, to fight, to go to battle. But we must keep in mind that behind this imperative is the beautiful reality that God has promised to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in His presence with great joy. One way to think about, uh, one way to think about this is, as Christians, uh, we don't fight for victory. 
but rather we fight from victory. We know that God's word will stand. It will be accomplished. His purposes will be fulfilled. And so when we fight to that end, we're privileged with being instrumental in what is inevitable. We fight from within the hands of our victorious Savior. Hands from which He promises that no one is able to snatch us from. A great picture of this idea of being kept by God is in Noah's ark. The ark that kept Noah and his family safe from the waters of God's judgment was a type and shadow of Christ. In the same way that the ark protected and preserved Noah and his family, so Christ always has and always will protect and preserve those who are called by God. We, brothers and sisters, are kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 2, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Jude now issues a blessing uh, to the called of God. He prays for mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied to God's beloved. Notice the Trinitarian nature of this blessing. Mercy, peace, and love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is merciful to us. The Son provides a way for us to have peace with God and the Holy Spirit pours out God's love in us. Consider Luke 6.36. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. God the Father is merciful. 1 Peter 1.3. Praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Father is merciful to us. Jesus provides peace with God. Romans 5.1 Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. John 14.27 Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. The Holy Spirit works as an instrument of God's love. Romans 5.5 5, For the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God the Father shows us mercy because of the work of Christ in our place. God the Son dies the death that we deserve to bring us peace with God. God the Spirit displays the love of God by regenerating us and causing us to love the Father through the Son. And so we see Jude issuing a triune blessing to the called of God. He prays for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to multiply blessings to the called. Now Jude will move on and tell us the point and purpose of his letter. Look with me at verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. 
The text isn't clear whether Jude actually sat down and started to write and then the Holy Spirit pressed upon him to change topics or whether it just had been his first desire to write about uh, our common salvation but then he found this new topic necessary. Either way, we see that he desired to write about our common salvation and was uh, pressed to write this letter instead. He wanted to write a letter explaining and expounding the beautiful work that God had accomplished on our behalf, our common salvation. He wanted to talk about the spiritually dead sinner being raised up to spiritual life. He wanted to talk about Christ taking the punishment for our sin and giving us His perfect righteousness. He wanted to talk about us being granted faith and repentance through the grace of God in order to receive the free gift of God. He wanted to talk about us being adopted by God through our union with Christ. He wanted to talk about the continued work of God in our life through our sanctification, wherein we are conformed more and more into the image of Christ. He wanted to talk about the resurrection of the body when we'll be given an imperishable body and dwell with God on the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. He wanted to talk about salvation, about God's work, God's gift, God's saving of sinners. He wanted to talk about our common salvation, but then he says he felt it necessary. This is necessary. I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about salvation, but this was necessary. I wanted to talk about the beauty and the glory of God's salvation of sinners, but right now there's something that's necessary for us to focus on. It's necessary. And so we see that whatever this is must be of great importance if it was necessary for Jude to write about instead of our common salvation. I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. While Jude wanted to write concerning the work of God on our behalf, he says that he found it necessary to write an appeal to us. Instead of writing about what God has done for us, he felt it necessary to write a charge to us an appeal for us to do something. And we see that the charge that he gives is to contend. To contend. The word contend in the Greek is apagonizomai. It was used primarily for athletes competing with one another or for soldiers fighting at war. It's literally to agonize oneself in, in a contest with another. To, to go to battle and to fight the opposition. And so he's charging the call of God to go to battle, to contend, to fight. And so please notice the contrast between Jude's original topic and the charge that he felt necessary to issue. He went from desiring to draw fellow Christians' eyes up to the glorious work of God on our behalf to charge them to fight. He desired to write concerning our common salvation something that we know is a sovereign work of God that we receive and rest in. 
He wanted to talk about the fact that God saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but because of mercy. But instead, he charges all believers to contend, which is the opposite of resting, the opposite of receiving, engaging in a righteous quarrel, a righteous battle. This is a good illustration of the paradox of the Christian life. It's true that we're resting in our salvation as spontaneously commanded of us. So what is it that Jude charges us to contend for? The faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith here refers to the gospel as well as the rest of the truth of God contained in the Scriptures. Jude charges Christians to contend for, to fight for, to go to battle for the truth of the gospel and its implications for Christian practice. And so there's two conclusions that we can draw from Jude's statement about the faith being once for all handed down that will help us uh, prove that the faith is contained in the Scriptures. The first thing that we can notice is that the faith has to be objective. Jude assumed that the faith uh, could be contended for. If he charges someone to contend for it, he assumes that it's possible to do so. And for something to be contended for, it must be objective. How can you contend for something that you can't define? If you and I are to obey Jude's charge through the Holy Spirit to contend for the faith, we cannot have two different definitions of what the faith that we're contending for is. It cannot be one thing to you and another thing to me. No, it must be objective. And so this is why God has preserved the Scriptures. God has providentially preserved the faith for us uh, in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. So the first uh, conclusion is that the faith must be objective. The second conclusion is that the faith uh, is unchanging. Since the faith that Jude is describing has been once for all handed down to the saints, that means that it's impossible for anything to be added to it or taken away from it. If something is once for all handed down, then if something is added to it or taken away from it, it ceases to be that which was handed down and becomes something different. This is one of the reasons why we must uh, reject the idea of continued revelation. Be very cautious when someone says to you that God told them something directly. This cannot be true. If God is still giving new revelation to individuals, then the faith that we have today is not the same faith that the Christians had in the past. And so the faith hasn't been once for all handed down if we're still getting more and more of it today. And so we see that Jude's description of the faith forces us to understand the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints to be objective and unchanging. The Scriptures preserve for us the objective and unchanging faith that was handed down to the saints once for all. 
and so we contend for the truths found in the Scriptures. You may be curious as to why Jude felt it so necessary to write for Christians to contend for the faith. He answers that for us in verse 4. Verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude starts off with the word for, so he's about to give the reason for why he felt it necessary to charge them to contend earnestly for the faith. And the reason that he gives is that certain persons have crept in unnoticed. There were people who had infiltrated the church in a very secretive way. They managed to come into the church in a very sly way so as not to draw too much attention to themselves. The fact that they crept in unnoticed implies that there was a great amount of truth that was mixed with their error. I don't know if you've noticed, but false teachers typically don't go around advertising their lies and their status as a false teacher. They don't wear signs on their back letting us know. No, their tools are deception and trickery. They are cunning. They teach enough truth to gain validity and trust but then they spoon-feed the ignorant false doctrine that will destroy their souls. Jude also tells us that they have, past tense, crept in unnoticed. Because it's in the past tense means that they're currently in the church when he's writing this. They have crept in. They're here now. Remember from our Scripture reading this morning that when Peter wrote his second epistle, he prophesied about false teachers coming into the church in the future. There will be false teachers among you. It did not take very long for this prophecy to come to pass. Jude tells us that these persons are in the church. They're here. He then describes them as being long ago marked out for condemnation. Just as sure as Peter's prophecy was about the false teachers coming into the church, it's his prophecy about their destruction. Recall the words of Peter from our scripture reading this morning, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Remember how I said before that we fight from victory? Well, this is an example of that. The destruction of these false teachers is sure. It's inevitable. And when we fight against their false teaching, uh, when we fight against their false teaching, we contribute uh, as a means to God's end. We contend earnestly for the faith, knowing that the faith will always prevail. Jude lastly identifies the error of these false teachers for us. He calls them 
ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. The error of these persons was to teach and practice that the grace of God permitted ungodly living. One definition of this is called antinomianism. It's the teaching that there's now no law binding upon Christians and that all actions and behavior are permissible because we're under grace. And so these people that Jude's talking about are living lives of blatant sinfulness under the banner of grace. Jude concludes that these ungodly persons, through their actions, were actually denying our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the use of the word master. False Christians who believe this error that grace permits a life of open rebellion to God could not claim God as their master. Jude, as a self-identified slave of God, understood that to live in open sinfulness and disobedience to God was to deny Him in our deeds even if we confess Him with our words. God is not your master if you don't obey Him. The error of these people was to turn grace into a license to sin. To view God's triune, redemptive work towards fallen sinners as a free pass to live in wicked debauchery. The truth, of course, is that grace does not free us to sin, but it frees us from sin. Grace frees us from the shackles of unrighteousness. It gives us a new heart with new desires. Desires for righteousness. It makes us love the thing that God loves and hate the things that God hates. It gives us a new nature. It doesn't permit us to engage more fully in our old nature. The error of these people was related to the nature of grace, how to respond to it, and how to view God in light of His grace towards us. And this explains why Jude found it necessary to issue this charge. The reason why it was necessary for him to issue this charge to God's people is because Jude had a deep love for the faith. He desired to write concerning our common salvation. He wanted to write about God's work towards us and how gracious God was. But he perceived that the very thing that he wanted to write about was being attacked. The faith that was so beautiful and precious to him was being threatened and perverted. There were people who snuck into the church and they were teaching contrary to the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith that Jude loved. They were teaching things that threatened the true uh, proclamation of the common salvation that he was so eager to write about. And so this morning we see that the main point of our first passage in Jude is that Christians are called to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. We as recipients of that great faith have the duty as well as the privilege to contend for it. And not only in our own lives for ourselves, 
but also for all those that are around us. Part of loving our neighbor as ourselves is to warn them of false doctrine and lovingly correct errors that would be damaging to their souls. And so this brings us to our application this morning. First, I would encourage you to look to Christ. Christ is the embodiment of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and is the substance of New Testament truth. He died for sinners like you and I. He was buried, on the th- but on the third day He rose again from the dead. This ensures us that our debt uh, for our sin was paid in full. If it was not, He'd still be dead. He'd still be buried, but He's not. He rose again. He appeared to the masses and He ascended to heaven from where He will come to judge the living and the dead. And that judgment day will be a day of great terror for those that have not repented of their sin and trusted in Christ for their salvation. If you have not been washed clean and justified in the sight of God by the very righteousness of Christ, then you will pay for your sins. God's wrath towards sin will be satisfied either by the work of Christ on the cross, taking upon Himself the wrath that you deserve, or by you in an eternal state of torment. But again, the good news is that God has graciously offered forgiveness through His Son for all who believe. So please, this morning, look to Christ. Come to Christ. He's the substance of the faith and the foundation of the common salvation that Jude was so eager to write about. But not only is Jesus the substance of the faith, He was also the chief example as a contender for it. He went to battle with the Pharisees and other religious leaders over the truth of Scripture throughout His whole ministry. I think the best summary of Jesus' approach to the defense of the truth of Scripture is found in His words recorded in Matthew 22.31 where He replies to the Sadducees and says, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Jesus contended for the faith presupposing that the truth of the faith was contained within the Scriptures. If you know the Scriptures, you know the truth. If you know the Scriptures, you know the faith. And so let us follow His great example and use the Scriptures to contend for the faith against those who believe in and teach error. I do need to point out, though, that this application uh, presupposes one prior to it. In order to contend for the faith, you must actually know the faith. You must have an understanding of the faith. You cannot contend for and fight for and go to battle for that which you do not know. And the better that you know it, the better you'll be able to defend it. And so, we need to get to know our Bibles. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. 
The Word of God is eternal. It will never fade or pass away. And it's the very bread for our soul. Read the Scriptures. Study the Scriptures. Teach your children the Scriptures. Discuss the Scriptures with your family. Share the truth of the Scriptures with each other. Be like Jude, always desiring to talk about, to write about, to teach others about the common salvation, but also be ready to contend earnestly for it when it's necessary. Know the faith. Love the faith. Cherish the faith. But when the faith gets attacked or perverted, you need to contend for it, to fight for it. And to combat a likely objection to our charge this morning, let us remember verse 1. Surely there's some uh, who think that this job of contending and fighting for the faith uh, belongs exclusively to the pastor or to those who have gone to seminary. Or maybe you think that it's only uh, the older and more mature Christians that have spent years in the Scriptures. They can, they're the ones that need to contend, not me. Consider verse 1. Jude's audience, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This is every Christian. Every Christian is called. Every Christian is beloved in God the Father. And every Christian is kept by God. Every single one. So Jude, through the Holy Spirit, has you in mind when he gives this imperative to contend. All Christians have this duty, or more accurately, the privilege to contend for the truth that God has entrusted to us. If you're a Christian, you must contend for the truth. You must know the Scriptures and fight for the truths taught in them. And so lastly, in closing, let's consider the doxology found in verse 24 and 25. Jude indeed charges us this morning to fight for the faith, to contend, to go to battle, to go to war. But he also reminds us of the great truth that should produce a boldness in us. Let's look. 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God is able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to make you stand in His presence. God gives us the charge through Jude to contend, but he also is the one who's able to produce the results. We fight for the faith knowing that we're kept by God and that no failure, no sin, no lack of effort, no amount of defeat can ever make us any less acceptable in the sight of God because he is able to make us stand in his presence covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you and confess that we are not worthy of the great gifts that you bestow upon us. We are not worthy to even possess and be entrusted with the faith, but yet you saved us by it and gave it to us in your word and promised to keep us and to make us stand in your presence blameless with great joy. I thank you for your goodness towards us. Day after day and week after week as we just continue to sin and fall short and not measure up, but you've made us acceptable in your sight through your Son. I thank you for his work on our behalf. Thank you for being kind to us. Thank you that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins that you sent the Holy Spirit to cause us to be born again, to go from hating you to loving you, from the darkness to the light. We thank you for your mercy towards us through your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.